This week, a, a blogger whose name you may recognize, or at least some of you may, um, Tim Challies, he, he wrote a, a post, and he entitled the post, If Satan Took Up Marriage Counseling. He wrote this as his opening paragraph. He said, every now and again, I just can't help myself. I respond to a clickbait headline and find myself reading an advice column. Well, I was probably reading Chalice because I responded to a clickbait. I don't know. I got there by clicking on it anyway. He said that the question this time was from a woman who had become disillusioned with her husband and enamored with someone else. As I read the columnist's response, I thought, I'm pretty sure that's exactly how Satan would counsel if he was asked. That got me thinking. If Satan took up marriage counseling, and then Chalice went on and he wrote several paragraphs of various things that Satan would want people to do or things that Satan would want people to believe if he was meeting them for marriage counseling. The, the entire post really was, was thought-provoking, yet, yet one paragraph in particular caught my eye as I was thinking about our sermon for this morning. Chalice wrote, if Satan took up marriage counseling, he would want people to believe that marriage is primarily a matter of an individual's personal lifestyle. That before marriage is about giving oneself to another person to love and serve, marriage is about a sense of personal well-being and fulfillment. That, that really is the core component of the world's message, isn't it? That life is about me. Everything should fulfill me. Life is about us. We're the center of everything. And with that being the core message our world gives us, it stands reason that our marriage should fit that bill as well, that our marriage should be first and foremost about us. Well, Satan may not have an official counseling ministry anywhere near us. He, he doesn't have a center with his shingle hanging over it, Satan's marriage counseling. He doesn't need to. He's the prince of the power of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He controls the system of this world. So all week long, he is counseling us through the messages of our culture. He is the most active marriage counselor there is. Fortunately, God has provided us with another voice, his own voice, his counsel that guides us in every area of life. He's given us his word. That is God's voice that speaks to life. God even sent an official counselor. He sent the Holy Spirit, the counselor, to guide us in applying God's voice to our lives. As believers, that means it's our privilege and our duty to make sure that we don't listen to the voices of the world all week long, and instead we heed the voice of God. We must disregard the, the contrary messages of our culture, the messages that ultimately find their source in Satan, and listen to the distinct voice of God. Each Sunday as we open God's word, we are seeking to hear God speak, as we sang in that, that last song. We are seeking to hear God's counsel to us. Today, that, that counsel will specifically address our home life. In the series that we've been going through here in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we've observed that we are to place Christ in the center of our lives. As we put Christ in the center of our lives, we are transformed. When we have him as the focus, we make our decisions based on his character. When we have him as the focus, we heed his instructions, and that transforms our thinking. We don't think in the way the, the culture tells us. Think We think in a distinct fashion, a fashion after Christ. 
Over the past couple of weeks, we've observed that this transformed thinking that we have, it affects how we live our lives as a church. We are transformed in the church, and that transformed thinking produces unity. A unity that displays Christ more fully to the world around us than disunity ever could. The world knows disunity. The world does not know unity. Well, at the same time, I'm sure all of us recognize the church is not the only sphere in which we live our lives. We spend a lot of our lives in places other than gathered together as the church. Yet Christ is to always be the center of our lives. That, that means, as stated in the final verse that we looked at last week, verse 17 of chapter 3, that whatever you do or we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. Christ is to always be the center of our lives. And as he's the center of our lives and all that we do, that will transform our thinking in all areas of life, including those areas outside of our church life. This morning, as I've already stated, Paul turns his attention then to our homes, our home life. We are to always have our, our mental gaze, and may, not our physical eyes, of course, Christ isn't here, but our mental gaze is to be fixed on Christ even when we're living in our homes. Our homes are not our castles. I'm sure you've heard your home is your castle, right? Wrong, it's not. Our home is Christ's castle. That is where we live out Christ in a home life. Our homes are Christ's castle. We are to gaze on Christ as we live our home. The main idea this morning is simple. Just gaze on, gazing on Christ, it transforms our homes. Just as gazing on Christ when we come to church transforms our church, gazing on Christ in our homes transforms our homes. And as we gaze on Christ, just as gazing on Christ in our church produces unity, what do you think it produces in our homes? It's not a trick question. Unity. Unity. Just as Christ produces it here in the church when we keep our gaze on it, our homes will be unified homes as we gaze upon Christ. This morning, Paul addresses our home life, and he does it by addressing four different roles that, that we might find ourselves in within our home. He talks to wives, husbands, children, and fathers. Obviously, none of us can fill all these roles. It's in spite of what our culture says, you cannot be the wife and the husband both. One or the other, maybe, but not both. So we are none of us going to fill all these roles. Some of us may not fill any of these roles. Yet within our church, within the lives of the church, among the believers, all four of these roles are represented. Plus, most homes have more than one of these roles present. It's hard to have a, a wife in a home without a husband. We have at least two in that case. Unity within the home comes when each person in the home listens to how Christ instructs him or her to live out the role that Christ has placed him or her into. Listening to the counsel of Satan bombarding us all week causes disunity in our homes. When we listen to Christ, Christ creates unity. Are you experiencing disunity in your home? Is there disunity within your home. Someone, if there is, is listening to Satan's message rather than Christ. 
Maybe you. Christ transforms our homes. Gazing on him transforms our homes. This morning we're only looking at four verses. Each verse considers one of these different roles that I just mentioned within God's general structure of home life. So we'll take them one at a time. In verse 18, Paul begins his attention on the homes with wives. He shows us that Christian wives are called to distinct living. Christian wives are called to distinct livings. I said Christian wives. Now, if you've already glanced at verse 18 in your Bibles, you probably noticed that Paul simply likes, writes their wives, right? I added the word Christian in front. Well, by now, I hope you've been here enough to remember that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He's assuming he's writing to believers. He's writing to people who are sitting in the church, worshiping Christ, listening to this word. His assumption is that he's writing to Christian wives. Christians are the only people who are gazing on Christ. Christians are the only people being transformed by Christ. The the unity that that Christ produced, it is only available to Christians. When, When a person is listening to Satan's message regarding how to live their lives, they're listening to a message that says, live your life independently of God. That message cannot produce unity. That person also cannot be listening to Christ in any area of their life because they're in active rebellion against God's Son who came to die for them. There is no possibility to listen to Christ. They cannot listen to that call of transformation that comes because it's not there. The only call that an unbeliever has is the call to accept Christ as Savior. That's the call that they need to heed. Once that call's been heeded, and Christ is their Savior, is the center of life, then they start listening to the transforming calls of Scripture. It's foolish for us to expect that an unbelieving wife or husband, child, father, whatever one of the roles we look at, it's foolish of us to expect that that individual will live as Paul describes. Unbelievers are not called to distinct living. They are called to come to Christ. Unbelievers have only the hopeless disunity offered by the world to guide their homes and their lives. By contrast, Christian faith affects all areas of our lives, including our home life. Let me just say, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, you're not even sure what I mean by that? Talk to me after the service. I would love to share with you more fully how you can heed that call to accept Christ. Send me an email. It's on the screen there. Paul's assumption is you are a believer, specifically a Christian wife in verse 18. He writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In a moment, I'm going to delve into this command, the command, be subject. And and yes, this is a command for Christian wives. It's not a suggestion. Paul uses an imperative. This is an expectation from God for a transformed wife. Yet before we look at the command, I want to make sure that we all understand that whatever it means for a wife to be subject, we'll get to that, whatever that means, Paul is not indicating that, that Christian women in general should be subject to all men. 
He's not saying this applies to women and men in general, nor is he even meaning that, that a Christian wife is to be subject to every Christian husband. No, the command that he's giving is between a Christian wife and her own husband. That, that means the command of verse 18 applies to grace in her relationship to me. She is to be subject to me as her husband. Grace is not instructed to be subject to any of the other men sitting here who happen to be husbands, nor is any other wife in the church to be subject to me as their husband. Understand, this is in the home. Also notice that, that Paul instructs wives to be subject to your husband. He doesn't qualify the husband as a Christian husband. The, the fact that the wives are addressed specifically, he says, wives... Be subject. He's assuming they're in the church. They're listening to him. They're there heeding this word as it's read. There's no assumption or no reason to make that assumption that the same is true of their husbands. In, in the church of Paul's day, just like now, there were many what we would call mixed marriages where the wife is a believer and the husband is not. Paul spoke specifically these kind of marriages in 1 Corinthians 7 when he wrote that letter. That the command in verse 18 is for a Christian wife, regardless of the spiritual state of her husband. So now let's get to the command. What does it mean to be subject? Or as most English versions translate it, submit. This command has popped up in other texts that we've looked at. So for many of you, it's probably familiar. I've explained it before. Most simply, this command just means to place yourself under the authority of another. You've got two people, equal in, in, in inherent value as worth. This isn't talking to one being inferior to the other. We're both image bearers of God. We're, we're equal in that reflection of God. But So you've got two people that in essence are equals, but it doesn't work if two people are trying to make decisions equal. So one voluntarily places herself under the authority of the other. The wife places herself under the authority structure in the home of her husband. So the command deals with authority structure, not worth or value structure. It doesn't mean that the wife is inferior in any way. She's just choosing to follow her husband's authority. Now, I know I've made this point before, but, but we need to understand that submission only comes into play when there's a difference of opinion regarding a course of action to take. If, if we're in agreement on things, husband and wives agree completely, there, there's not submission, there's agreement. It's only at times when the wife disagrees with a husband's decision on, on things that affect them both, that's when submission comes into the picture. A very simple example, consider the matter of lunch after the service. Grace and I already talked about lunch, so this doesn't apply to, to, to today. We know what we're doing, but, but assume that Grace and I both agree that we would like to eat out. In that case, she's not submitting me when I say, let's go out to eat. We've already agreed, that's what we want to do. But suppose Grace wants to eat out, and I decide, you know, our funds are tight, we really shouldn't. We should go home today and, and eat at home where, where it's less expensive. Here's where submission comes in. She has one desire. I have a different desire. They, they conflict. We cannot do both. So she chooses to place herself under my authority by submitting to going home for the, the lunch today. Now, does this mean that a husband will always make the, the best decision for the home? 
Wives, you can laugh at this point. Certainly not. In, in every case, at least to some level, the, the wife will at least wish that the decision had gone a different direction. Sometimes it may be a very strong wish, sometimes it may be a mild wish, but the fact that she desired something else originally, there's at least some level of wish that it went another route. Plus, inevitably, time will show in some cases the decision should have gone a different direction. The husband made a poor choice. Remember that post I talked about that Chalice wrote? In one paragraph of musing on, on Satan's marriage counsel, he wrote, If Satan took up marriage counseling, he would want wives to determine that submission is a mark of weakness and that if it is given at all, it should be given only when it is earned. That's the message of the devil. That submission is a mark of weakness and it needs to be earned. Chalice is right on the mark here. That is what Satan would want because Satan knows that husbands are not infallible. Husbands will royally mess up some of the decisions they make. But notice here, wives, speaking to you, you're not yielding to your husband because you believe your husband would be infallible. You're yielding because you know it is fitting in the Lord. You, you, you yield to his authority because this is God's expectation. This is what God expects of wives who are Christians. That their word fitting means proper. Some English versions translate it that way. It means proper. God, God has determined that this is the proper manner for wives to conduct themselves so that there is unity in the home. It's about unity. It has nothing to do with the husband's. It has everything to do with the wife's relationship to Christ. In fact, Paul words the original in a way that that word that we have translated is fitting or, or is proper. The, the, the original wording of that implies that this is the way it has always been in God's arrangement for the family. It's not a new idea. The, the fact that it's difficult demonstrates the impact of sin upon God's design. That this really is not a radical command at all. This is a recreation command. This is taking us back to what God originally designed in creation, recreating us to be that which we were meant to be. God's simply calling wives back to the original design intent. So let me ask you, wives, when, when others look at you, do they see someone who's living in a distinct fashion? Or are you one who is submissive to your husband? That will be very distinct in our culture. From our culture perspective, it's about as radical as it can get, but remember I said this isn't radical, this is just recreation. From your natural inclination, I do understand this is about as difficult as it gets. I don't want you to think that in any sense I, I suggest that this is easy. Our sin goes deep in all of us. So when God takes us back to original design intent, we're going back to where the core of our sin nature lives and, and loves living. Submission requires yielding your own decision and your own desires to another. That is a risky proposition. It's risky to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of your husband. It's not natural to do that. You know your husband's a sinner. You know he's going to mess up. It's not natural. It's supernatural. 
Submission is Christian living. It's distinct living that is fitting for you because more than you desire your independence, more than you desire your control, more than you desire anything else, you desire to display that you are in the Lord. Before I move on, I, I do want to make sure that we all understand that, that God never grants total authority to any human agency. God understands better than any of us will understand that, that all humanity is corrupted by sin. So that means submission is never an absolute call in Scripture. If a husband asks a wife to do something that is distinctly, blatantly sinful, well, she must place her submission to God above her submission to her husband. Clear? Gazing on Christ transforms our home. Christian wives are called to distinct living. Let's move on. I know I've spent a lot of time here dealing with verse 18, and that's not because I think the wives need more instruction than the rest of the people here. Um, rather, much of what I spent time really explaining in verse 18 applies to all of the roles we're going to look at. In every role, the one addressed, Paul is assuming this is a Christian that's being addressed. In every one of the roles that we're going to look at, the, the other person in the relationship, there is no assumption that that person's a believer. In fact, there's no condition placed around that person at all. Those assumptions apply all the way through. All the commands as well are unconditional. These are commands we do because we're Christians. These are believers' duties that are placed on the believer because he or she is gazing at Christ. Believers are to heed the command without any thought of whether the other, per other person has earned the right to receive the treatment that's called for or not. Just as the wife is to give that submission to her husband, regardless of his worthiness. Verse 19, Paul turns his gaze to husbands. Christian husbands are called distinct living. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. First command there, simple command, husbands, love your wives. Paul uses that Greek word agapao, as you've heard of agape love, I'm sure, many times in, in church. That's the love here. This is that sacrificial, that self-giving love that, that is so perfectly modeled by Christ. In fact, Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians roughly together, and he has a parallel set of commands in, in Ephesians chapter 5. And, and when Paul deals with the husbands there in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We, husbands, were commanded to have a sacrificial, lay down our lives if necessary kind of love for our wives. It's not that the command is hard to understand. The hard part comes when we recognize the bar by which we're to measure our fulfillment of the command, Christ. That's what makes the command hard. I don't even have to ask, as I look out here at all the husbands, I don't even have to ask, how are we doing in this measure? We're failing. None of us have reached the bar. We are all falling short when it comes to loving our wives as we ought. We have far too much selfishness within us. 
rather than constantly gazing at Christ so that we see that bar clearly at all times, rather than doing that, we frequently gaze down at our own interests. So we fail to maintain our love for our wives as Christ calls us to maintain our love for our wives. Yet, my goal this morning is not to lay a guilt trip on us husbands. I I simply want to recognize that that we cannot rest in this area. We are not there yet. If we measure ourselves by the world standards again, and we look at the messages Satan is throwing out, we probably think, well, man, we are amazing men. We're not. We are far short. We must strive for more, further supernatural, distinct living. We also should recognize that every time we fail, we are making it harder for our wives to submit. Sure, it's not an excuse for them, but it's harder for a wife to submit to a husband who is more concerned about himself and his own, and his own well-being than he is about his wife's well-being. The more we show our concern for our wife, the easier it is for her, for her to submit. Yet whether our wife is submissive or not, Our duty is to love her unconditionally. That's the beginning of verse 19. But one thing that makes 19 unique when you compare all four of these different verses where Paul's given commands, one thing that makes verse 19 unique is in the other three, Paul gives a reason for the command. He he gives a purpose clause, a statement of here's why you should do what you're doing. He doesn't do that with us husbands. Instead of giving us a reason... He throws in a second command. He gives us another command. I guess the reason is assumed. We're Christians. We're the the heads of our homes. As as leaders in our home, we must lead in a Christian manner. There's nothing that needs to be explained in that. So he throws in a second command. Do not be embittered against our wives. Some versions translate as do not be harsh. Harshness is the outworking of an embittered spirit. When, when we take on a bitter attitude, it strikes out in harsh actions. Really, this is just the opposite side of love. Love, we seek the good of the object of our love. We seek our wives' highest well-being. Embittered, we seek our own well-being. It's diametrically opposed. Rather than focus on our wives' concern, bitterness causes us to focus on our own concerns. It, and over time, it builds up resentment and and we then begin to indulge ourselves because we resent that our freedom is impinged by loving our wives. We can't do what we want all the time. Bitterness comes as we gaze on our own unfulfilled desires rather than gazing on Christ. Man, our world is filled with embittered husbands, harsh husbands. Husbands joke about all the things they they cannot do because they're wives. That that ball and chain that they took on when they said, I do. They they joke about that so much it's just a standard stereotype joke, right? She's my ball and chain at home. I have to go home. Husbands snap at their wives. Husbands resent their wives harshly and they treat their wives harshly. They mock and they scorn and demean their wives. That, That behavior is so common it's a stereotype today. The, the bumbling, frustrated, unhappy husband at home, that's every comedy you can watch on TV, every sitcom. Man, look at the screen. We are called to distinct living, 
We are called to look away from the stereotypes of our culture and gaze on Christ. Create unity in your home by loving your wives and do not be embittered against them. Gazing on Christ transforms our homes. Husbands are called to distinct living. So too are children. Christian children are called to distinct living. Verse 20, children, and we have some in here today. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The, the expectation in Paul's day is that, just like this morning here, that when this letter is read, there'd be children sitting in the, the service. Not only would there be children sitting there, Paul's expectation is that at least some of those children are believers. So he's calling you kids to listen to what God has for you as well. Children, too, are to gaze on Christ, experiencing the transformation of Christ, living distinctly for Christ. Children, what Paul is telling you is you are a responsible person. Your Savior has placed an expectation on you just like he has on the adults. Specifically, children are commanded to be obedient to your parents. And notice it's both parents. Just by virtue of, of a person being dad or mom, that person warrants obedience. Dad may be head of home, but from your perspective as a, a child, both mom and dad deserve your obedience. Now, obedience is similar to submission, but there is distinction. Submission, as I said, means recognizing the authority of one that's over you. Recognizing that authority. Well, obedience recognizes not only the authority of that person, but also the right of that person to issue commands. Obedience recognizes that, that the person in authority can issue commands. So kids, that means your parents have God's authority to issue commands to you. They have the right to tell, tell you what to do. And God has said you are to obey. In fact, I know there's some kids here. Look at your Bibles. I want kids to answer this question. What does it say in verse 20? Children, be obedient to your parents in what? What are the next two words? All things, exactly. All things. There are no exceptions. This is not obey in the things you feel like doing. Or it's not obey if you have time for it right now. Obey when mom is getting really, really angry, and if I don't, it's going to hurt. This is obey in all things. Now, I want to make sure that both kids and parents understand what obedience is. Obedience means that, that number one, you, you do what is commanded. Mom says, pick up the toys. Obedience means that you actually pick up the toys. All the toys. Not, not just a symbolic few. Mom says, oh, pick up toys. So while she's looking, I go and grab the first couple toys I step on and throw those away. And then the moment she looks away, I'm done. That's not obedience. Obedience doesn't mean I pick up the largest ones and ignore the smaller ones. It means all the toys. Even if it takes a long time. So it means do what you're commanded, but it also means, number two, obedience means do it right away. Unless mom or dad, in this case mom, is the one who said pick up toys, unless mom gives you permission to delay, you do it right away. 
You don't pick up the toys when you feel like doing it. You, you don't wait till your show that you're watching is over or the game that you're playing is, is finished and you lost your last life or whatever. You do it now. That's obedience. You pick up the toys when the command is issued. Further, there's one more th component to obedience, kids, you need to understand. Obedience means that you jump to it mentally in your mind, not just physically in your body. What I mean by that is, when mom tells you to pick up the toys, you don't do it while you grumble in your mind the whole time, I shouldn't have to do this. Obedience says, mom says pick up toys, I gotta pick up the toys. So I'm gonna think on where's all the toys laying around that I need to pick up. Parents, let, let me just mention to you, even though Paul's talking directly to the children, your job as a parent is to make sure your children understand what obedience is. Your job as a parent is to instruct. So it's your job to make sure they understand obedience, and part of that teaching is punishment as well. When, when our children were young, Pastor Albright used to, to say that as parents we need to punish for the three Ds, disobedience, disrespect, and dishonesty. And he's right on. All three of those are sinful behaviors that, that parents are responsible for teaching their children is sin. At the same time, children, I want you to recognize you are the ones addressed here in verse 20. Not your parents. Paul is talking to you. Children, obey your parents. You are the one to do this. Why? Because it is well-pleasing to the Lord. In other words, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you will want to please Jesus. Obeying your parents pleases Him. As the song says, obedience is the very best way to show that I believe. Gazing on Christ transforms our homes. Christian children are called to distinct living. Lastly for today, Christian fathers are called for di to distinct living. Verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. It, you can tell it's intentional here. Paul switches from verse 20 where he refers to both parents to now specifically the father. Fathers alone, in verse 21, fathers, said, as head of the home, have the final responsibility for directing the, the behavior of the children within the home. Ultimately, discipline within the home rests on the father. I mentioned the three Ds, disobedience, disrespect, and dishonor. Well, one type of disrespect that, that meant within immediate discipline in, in our home was if my children would ever disrespect their mother. Grace disciplined the children for probably more disobedience than I did. She was with them a lot of the times. Yet, it was my job to ensure she was never disrespected. That's how I oversaw the behavior of their home. As long as she was not disrespected, she could deal with the disobedience. The, the danger that, that comes to us fathers, that Paul highlights here, those if all of our children see us as fathers doing is discipline without any love, then they can become exasperated. That, that word that Paul uses for exasperated is an unusual word. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2. And there the word clearly means to provoke a response. Most versions is used translate stimulate. Paul's taking up an offering and, and he's trying to stimulate others to give. 
is the idea of provoking a response. Paul's point in, in this verse, using it, seems to be that constant discipline can irritate children so much that, that they become rebellious rather than disciplined if we're not careful as fathers. Fathers, we're, we're responsible to find that balance, and it will vary for every child. What if that balance between discipline and love that we need to show together in a balance so that they are not provoked to rebellion against God. Our goal is there are children who will desire to please us. If we don't find the balance, if we're not careful, our children can conclude it's impossible to please us. We need to remember, from a child's perspective, we model God for them. The image that they form of God, their Heavenly Father, begins with how they see their earthly father. It's our responsibility to make sure that they see God's character quality in us. So fathers, we must keep our gaze on Christ, the perfect example of correcting discipline wrapped up in love. Christ corrects, but he does it with love. We need to do that so that we can model God properly. Gazing on Christ transforms our homes. Christian fathers are called to distinct living. As I said, whether we recognize it or not, Tim Chalice was, was pointing to the reality of our world in the blog post he gave. Satan wishes to counsel the marriages of our homes. He wants to be engaged in our homes, changing how we conduct ourselves so that they fit his pattern. He does that through the message of our culture. He does it very effectively in the lives of unbelievers. But we're called to live differently. As believers, we're called to live in a distinct fashion. The only way we can do that is to keep our gaze fixed on Christ. Gazing on Christ transforms our home. This morning we've seen wives, husbands, children, fathers. We're all called to distinct living. To do that, we must keep our gaze fixed on Christ. For any one of us in, in one or more of these positions, we need to examine our lives. We need to examine ourselves, challenge ourselves. Where are we failing to live out the distinction that Christ calls us to? Where are we gazing at the counsel of Satan rather than the counsel of Christ? We need to gaze at Christ in all areas of our lives and live distinctly. Now, before we leave this morning, let me make one final observation. Paul wrote these commands to the church. I pointed that out because I said each person receiving the command was sent in the church, but he wrote them to the church collectively. There are some here this morning that are not in any one of these four roles specifically. You're not a, a wife, a husband, a, a child, or a father. Yet sitting all around you this morning are people in these roles. You're surrounded by people who are trying to live out what Christ has called them to in these particular roles. You've heard the distinct way that they are called to live. Challenging ways, hard ways, transformed ways. Your role, even if you're not in one of these roles, is to encourage those who are in these roles. You do not have to be a, a, a wife to encourage a wife to gaze on Christ in her home life when her home life is difficult. 
You do not need to be a husband to encourage a husband to gaze on Christ when his home life is difficult. You, you know how hard it is to gaze on Christ. You live in this world too. Whether you're one of these roles or not, you know how hard it is to gaze on Christ when, when life is hard. You can encourage children and fathers, wives and husbands. You know that gazing on Christ will transform us and enable us to live distinctly from the world around us. Be that encourager. Gazing on Christ transforms our homes. Let's pray. Father, you've called us to live in a manner that is distinct, also a manner that is difficult because it is contrary to what our sin nature calls us to do and very contrary to our world tells us and encourages us to do. But Father, you've called us to live for Christ. So I pray that you would help us now. First, help each person here to examine their own lives, see where they may be failing to live. For some, it will be specifically in the roles that we've looked at today. Father, we do want to have homes that are reflecting the transforming work of Christ. Help us to create those homes by keeping ourselves fixed upon Christ. Father, help us to encourage one another to do that. This is a hard world to live distinctly in. We thank you that you've given us the church. You've given us one another. You've encouraged us to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So may we do that for each other so that Christ is magnified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.